Hello, college football fans, and welcome to episode 37 of College Football Throwdown. I am your co-host, Alex Schmitz, and today I'm joined by my dad, Peter Schmitz. Hello there. All right. This is our first college football podcast of the off-season. I mean, I guess it's our second because we did the national championship recap podcast. But... The, this is I'd say this is the first real one now that we're significantly past that. We're really looking towards, you know, the next year. Right. Absolutely. Next year's season. Um, now, uh, for those of you who are listening to us for the first time, I might be a little confused right now. This is College Football Throwdown. We are a uh, podcast that is a father-son duo of college football fans uh, talking about college football for other college football fans. We're not media professionals. We're just two guys who love the sport. That's right. And uh, and uh, we're going to uh, keep with tradition and have you uh, break in our cold beverage that you have over on your side of the pond. Yes. Uh, it might be interesting to note that we're doing this on uh, Super Bowl Sunday prior to the game because we're kind of getting ourselves into the football spirit here. Even though college football season is now past us, and we have the long, lonely uh, months of no college football. That's right. But here we go. We can still talk about it. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, there's a lot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there's always, always a lot to talk about. You know, the, these poor head coaches, it really is a 365-day-a-year kind of job. They never get a break. That is so true. Yeah, so this is going to kind of be our uh, – our recruiting focused episode now that signing day has passed us and we can look at, you know, who, uh, who the websites are saying are like the top 25, you know, recruiting classes. And we'll specifically dive into some specifics about Nebraska situation and the things that happened, you know, on signing day for us. Uh, but before we get into the Nebraska stuff, we'll talk national. And I'm currently looking at the, uh, 24, seven sports.com, uh, composite rankings uh would you say that this is one of the more like reputable like lists of these things i know that they're up there with rivals in terms of their you know i would say alex i would say alex that it is and and i particularly like that composite because that composite actually is made up of a uh, a number of the uh more uh recognized recruiting services rivals uh 247's own uh, data and then I think it's also ESPN 300 and maybe one other, um, one other grouping that they use um, to, to put together that compilation. I don't know if it's Scout or, or whatever, but, but it's a nice compilation. Mm-hmm. For sure, for sure. So uh, rounding out, let's go with the top five here, I suppose. We have uh, Alabama at number one, Florida State two, LSU three, Ohio State four, and Michigan five. Uh, so interesting from the Nebraska perspective to see our, you know, two of the biggest powerhouses in the Big Ten cracking into that top five. That's definitely a good sign for the future of those programs. It, it really is. It really is. And and it's also interesting to, to see the take from, like, the Big Ten network and stuff with regard to that. Uh, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. I think the Big Ten uh, was gearing up for a, for a broadcast on signing day that was that was going to focus on the fact that you know Michigan and Ohio State found themselves basically ahead of a lot of the the traditional SEC powers, and that there was maybe even 
you know, a little bit of a, of a feather in the cap to the Big Ten to say, hey, we, we not only have we arrived, but we, we've even surpassed them, at least for this year. But then uh, Alabama and some other SEC schools came in with just some amazing, uh, you know, uh, windfall on that final day when all the final, uh, you know, top athletes made their decisions and many of them gravitated to the, to the SEC. And so it swung dramatically in the SEC's direction. And that's why you see the, the top 10, the way it is with a lot of SEC representation. Yeah. Uh, one thing I'm surprised by just looking at this list, Michigan signed 29 kids, which is a lot more than most of the other schools on this list. Right. And, and the reason they were able to do that is because they, they had a, both a combination of some departures, which isn't uncommon when you get a new coach, uh, uh, combined with the fact that they, they, didn't, they, they didn't sign all their, all their scholarship opportunities last year. I think uh, because of the late nature of, uh, of the decision by Harbaugh to, to come to Michigan last year, um, he wisely chose not to you know, rush to, to judgment and, and just to fill a class. He signed a relatively small class last year, knowing that that would then give him some scholarships that he could do uh, and focus on kids specifically that could sign at semester and therefore be eligible to be assigned backwards to the previous class, mm-hmm. if you understand what I mean. Basically, you have 25 scholarships that you can give on any given year as a maximum, uh, not to exceed 85. Then there are conference-specific rules that determine how many you can quote quote oversign and and I'm, we'll go into the whole oversigning thing uh, down the road but but bottom line there's rules that, that are governed to do that and he was able to kind of really get around that a little bit by having a, a large number i believe it was 7 it might have even been 8 players that were that were signed at semester meaning they are already all on campus um, because they grew graduated and or were junior college kids and so they were able to come in immediately and start playing uh and they'll be available for him for spring practice for the michigan team um so anyway that's that's what allowed him to kind of you know basically kill two birds with one stone and end up with a 28 person class mm-hmm. yeah and then the rest of the top 10 is uh old miss at six georgia at seven usc eight auburn nine and clemson ten um i'm curious to see, I guess maybe uh, won't be. Well, we'll, uh, we'll see. Uh, I'd be curious to see if Clemson's recruiting class is able to uh, to get like maybe a spike up like next year, as if they, especially if they, you know, uh, dominate the a- ACC like they did this year. Um, well, in in in, in the rec- in the recent past, Clemson has done well. Debo and his staff are very good recruiters. So they're not uh, they're not new to the top ten, top fifteen, uh, you know, presence. But I I expect they absolutely will get a bump, and uh, it will continue into next year uh, for them. Mm-hmm. For sure, for sure. Um, was there any other um, national news that's happened over the past couple of weeks you wanted to talk about? Well, you know, it's just uh, obviously there's always a lot of discussion about uh, you know projections of what this recruiting class and how teams fared in it is going to project to the future. I think a couple of highlights uh, external to you know the Big Ten would be uh, you know Texas had a, a whirlwind last day in which he, they got some great great uh, uh, kids to commit to their school as well as uh, I think they got a couple of guys to flip 
from previous commitments to theirs, and they ended up with a, a, a really premier class that was unexpected by some of the analysts going into signing day. So Texas had uh, really, you know, really finished strong. USC really finished strong. Uh, so some of those traditional powers that maybe had been on a little bit of a rough skid or a difficult year uh, were able to finish strong um, and, and put themselves right back in the thick of it in terms of just the acquisition of talent. Um, it was also interesting to note that there are some key schools that, you know, just, just a short few years ago, you know, would not have been uh, viewed as, as people likely to be in this top, let's say, top 15 group, and that would be Old Miss, who now has become a uh, regular in the top 10 since Hugh Freeze became their coach. Uh, uh, but there are some downsides to that. Uh, they just got uh, put uh, on notice by the NCAA that uh, punishment's coming. Uh, I don't know how severe it'll be, but but they're they're starting. To, you know, their their methodologies are, are certainly uh, under suspicion at this point. And, and then you got Baylor and TCU from the Big 12, who have historically been doormats. Frankly, very very little um, uh, true tradition at Baylor uh, of winning conference championships uh, in football, and TCU at times a little bit, but but not really anything uh, of the nature that they're they're getting now. They're now. Uh, being able to secure recruits nationally at a level that they've never been able to do before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Well, and looking uh, down at the list, you know, TCU is actually 23, Nebraska is 24. But this ranking also includes like numbers on how many five stars, how many four stars, how many three stars. Mm. And if you look at Nebraska stats, we have five, four stars and 16, three stars. A lot of these right. schools have a lot more than that, uh, so it's just mm-hmm. interesting. I, I, I guess that that must uh, must mean we have a lot of three stars that are considered to be pretty good three stars to kind of correct. That. And 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 you know the, that that is an age old argument, Alex. The reality is when you, you get to some of those premier schools, you know what's going on at an Alabama or an Ohio State. Uh, I mean, only one kid gets to play each position, you know, right? There's 22 positions and then a punter and a kicker. So, but what that means is those teams are going to have a substantial amount of depth. Those teams are going to be able to send droves of players at you. And especially in this day and age where there's a lot more rotation, particularly on, on defense and, and on offense, at like wide receiver and running back positions, it's great to have, you know, the kind of depth so that, so that you have two or three guys in, in many of those positions that you can put into the game who are not just capable, but are capable of being exceptional. And, and, um, and that kind of differentiates the great teams from the good teams. And so if you're a team that's, that's you know, securing five or six of those uh, four-star and above type of players uh, you know, every year, maybe, maybe eight now and then, uh, you're going to have enough frontline players to compete with just about – all but the very, very elite teams in the country. But you're not going to have the depth, typically, if that's where you're at. Uh, if, uh, you know, there's a strong correlation, as Alabama has demonstrated, between having success consistently in the recruiting game and having it on uh, success on the field. There are always exceptions where one, one team will have great um, success at recruiting, but then it won't translate to the field. Oftentimes, that coach gets fired if it doesn't yeah. start to translate. Yeah. <laughs> well, we've seen that with like uh, you know the Michigan coaches. You know, Michigan was right. still recruiting lights out under 
Rich Rod and the other guy who I'm blanking on right now. Hoke, Brady Hoke. Hoke, yes. Uh, but yeah, then you just weren't seeing that talent, you know, manifest on the field. So then the coach coach gets in trouble if that's the case. That's correct. And so so you, you, you need both. And if you're unable to put together a staff, and it's not just about the head coach, you know, it really is about, uh, about the whole staff. And, and their ability to not only sustain the recruiting success, but also sustain the success on the field. And, uh, you know, so it's not enough to just be great recruiters, but it's also not enough to just be a great coach who's a good developer of talent. You have to be able to uh, pound the pavement and go out there and get those premier, ta- uh, premier players. Uh, it, it, it does come down to the Jimmys and the Joes, so to speak, uh, when, when, it, when, uh, when you start talking about championships. Mm-hmm. And uh, transitioning us over to the Big Ten, uh, here at 24-7, they have breakdowns for all the conferences as well. So uh, Nebraska comes in fifth in the conference uh, behind Michigan State, Penn State, Michigan, and Ohio State. Um, kind of interesting to me that Penn State managed to uh, gather a better class than Michigan State, even though if you look in terms of you know success in the field this year, one definitely outweighed the other. Right. And, and certainly recruiting, Alex, is way more complicated than, than just a correlation to how you're doing on the field. And, uh, and to some extent, Nebraska would be the opposite example of that, where we had, you know, one of the worst seasons in, in the last 50 plus years at our school. And yet, um, you know, our recruiting was uh, pretty much where we've been in recent years in that top 25 to 35 type of range with an occasional bump into, you know, the top 20. Uh, that's kind of been our MO uh, under our recent coaches um, as far as recruiting rankings go. So, so, uh, but, but specific to your point about, uh, about Penn State, actually, Penn State earlier in the recruiting season, earlier in the, in the football season, uh, uh, Penn State appeared to be on the verge of having a just absolutely landmark class, was probably going to be in the top 10. Uh, type of class, but they actually lost some uh, recruits, some guys flipped on them, that sort of stuff, and they didn't end up uh, closing as strong as uh, as uh, maybe they would have hoped, say, back in September or October. Um, so uh, some of that was actually Penn State tumbling a little bit in their recruiting rankings. You know, Penn State benefits greatly from the fact that they're the major school in the state of Pennsylvania, which produces a very high number of talented football players every season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and interesting with Michigan State. I mean, it kind of comes back to that whole Big Brother complex that we've talked about with them a lot. You know, I, 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 I feel for Michigan State fans because it's like, you know, they produce better results in the field you know, than Michigan did, you know, that has done for the past few years. You know, they've gone to the big the rose bowl you know won a couple big 10 championship games but they're still getting beat by michigan and you know then the recruiting battle by a pretty good margin yeah and and i'm sure that's always a concern but but i think they're confident enough in their coach and their coaching staff and his demonstrated ability to to basically uh beat michigan's supposedly better talent with consistency now with harbaugh obviously you got to kind of re-earn those stripes because uh, Harbaugh comes in with a pedigree that's quite impressive, uh, but uh, but the reality is that that uh, you know um, uh, Michigan State has learned that they do it their way, and sometimes that doesn't mean getting 
you know, all the things. That, uh, there, there's maybe one thing I would point out. There's a couple of things, actually, about Michigan's recruiting class that, that are, are actually maybe little signs of, of concern um, hmm. with all the success that that group represents. And it, and it looks like a phenomenal group that should put uh, Harbaugh and the Michigan team in a position to win championships in the very near future just loaded with talent. Uh, the reality is, is it also comes with expectations. And uh, and that class only includes a couple of players from the state of Michigan. Mm. Um, most of their talent, uh, a lot of it, way more of it than, than from Michigan, came from places like New Jersey and, and, and you know, uh, ca- uh, California or Florida, you know, these kinds of places. Georgia, I think, uh, was one of their players. So so they, they went very national with, with their recruiting, more so than – than typical, I would say, of Michigan. They have they've always been able to tap into the state for five or six or seven players. It would seem to me, if my my memory serves me right, about Michigan's recruiting classes. Now, Michigan State here has, in recent years, locked up the state of Michigan pretty good. Mm, so that might be a factor of it. Also, I remember in one of our earlier podcasts, we were talking about those uh, the the training camps, you know, that uh, that were going on where you know teams were go into these like high school, you know, camps for multiple high schools, right. you know, and we call them satellite camps. the satellite camps. Yes. And, uh, and I remember Harbaugh was hitting the pavement pretty hard on those as well. So I think you definitely got that. He was pursuing a more national uh, view. Absolutely. And, and, and I think that will continue. I, I don't, I, and I don't want to suggest that that's a bad thing necessarily. Other than that, I think there is a, there's a, there's a value to a chemistry that, keeps a certain percentage of your players from your home state. So that passion, that commitment to university that comes from literally the time you're born, it needs to be present on your team in droves. And so you need to have guys that are either, you know, uh, legacies where their dads played for, you know, your team or, or they're from the state born and raised, always dreamed of playing for the, you know, uh, state you kind of thing. Right. right. Um, and if they don't, if they don't have that, um, then sometimes the chemistry can be a little more fragile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Could you watch your uh, your little uh, earbud cord on your end? I feel like I'm hearing it rubbing on something. Sorry. <laughs> I'm scolding him. Um, yeah. I wonder yes. how does that play into Nebraska though, because obviously because of the small size of the state of the population of Nebraska, we're forced to go, you know, national. We don't have any real choice right. about it. So that means that we don't have that kind of consistent core of, you know, I mean, obviously there's still plenty of players on Nebraska that are from Nebraska, but not as many as, you know, many other of those uh, in-state schools. That's a great question. And um, I I, I would say that there are two ways to answer it. The first one is that, um, you know, in recent years, Nebraska's talent in the state of Nebraska has been down. Um, when we were enjoying our, our, our great run in the 90s and early 2000, uh, we actually were getting quite a number of players from the state of Nebraska who just happened to be good enough to be, you know, high-level uh, 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 recruits, you know. Uh, and, and, of course, they, they leaned to Nebraska at that time. Um, also, the, the surrounding states of Kansas and Missouri and Colorado were trending upward Iowa were trending upward and had a lot of uh, pretty nice, high-quality recruits, All uh, many of which we got because of the 
tradition and the success that Nebraska was already having. Guys like Grant Wistrom from Missouri and and um, you know that sort of thing. So so I mean it wasn't just about getting Nebraska kids, but 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 also um, uh, supplementing that group with a group of kids from the surrounding states. That's why so often uh, Nebraska's coaches talk about the 500 mile radius and that that is a very real thing for Nebraska's success in recruiting, uh, is that you, you've got to have those national recruits in California, Texas, Florida. We have to go there and get talent because we just don't have enough of them where we pre- reside. But uh, for us to be at our best, we need to succeed at, at securing the premier talent in our 500-mile radius to the best of our ability every year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's always we, Sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say we didn't, we didn't, we did an okay job this year, particularly given our record. Uh, I, I would say we did adequately, uh, but there are certainly some disappointments in there uh, because we should have gotten some kids, or we would have liked to have gotten some kids that we did not get that were right in our backyard. Right. Well, and talking about that, because that made me think, you know, it's uh, good, good of Riley and his staff, you know, that like you say we were able to get a recruiting class that's about where we've been, you know, in recent years, right in that, that uh, sneaking into the top 25 uh, with a, you know, year where we had a losing record, you know? Uh, So do you think that gives us hope that if, you know, this next year we get a pot, a winning record, you know, we do better, we show improvement uh, that we might see some improvement in recruiting too, and maybe break out of that, you know, break into that top twenty, like you were saying, break into that better recruiting bubble. I believe there's a great chance of that. I really do. Um, and again, there's so many factors that enter into it. How do you start? You know, are you able to get some early commitments that that lead to momentum? Because uh, more so today than ever, Alex, uh, players recruit players. With all the social media and that sort of stuff, mm-hmm. the ability for the uh, early uh, commitments, the guys that make their decision and are all in with their university early, become really critical as leaders of the recruiting classes. And, the, and some of the premier, premier players who embrace that leadership role, I think they, they now anticipate and, and, and plan to make their decision early so that they can be that Pied Piper that then draws a lot of other great talent into the same class with them. And that's particularly true, I think, with quarterbacks. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, uh, you'll see that most premier programs, they try to go out and secure the commitment from one of their top quarterback uh, you know, uh, targets early in the recruiting process every year because it's so vital that that quarterback kind of be in the fold so that then that guy can be on the phone and in social media communicating with you know potential running backs and wide receivers and linemen and all that, or defensive players. I mean, it's just all kind of snowballs in a positive way, or frankly, in a negative way, if you swing and miss on a lot of those early targets. Right, right. That it's kind of a gamble if you yeah. if you go hard for that kind of market, if you will. Yeah, uh, but it's just it's the nature of how it how it goes now, you know. So you you have to try your best to take advantage of it because it's not something you can keep from happening. If you're a coach, you know, it, it, it's, it, you just have to do your best and, and, and try your, your darndest to, to make those commitments. You know, there's one other thing I, I neglected to mention uh, that I think is really important to your, your question previously, you know, how does Nebraska deal with the situation that I was describing about Michigan and just making sure that you have that, uh, that core of 
players from the state that have that, that just bleed for the university. I, I think the way you do that, it, uh, the way Nebraska does it and has historically done it, is is our walk-on program. Yeah. Because our walk-on program is so much bigger than most other teams, uh, that continues to be a vital uh, part of our uh, our process of uh, um, evaluation and of uh, getting kids to try really hard. You know, when they see all these walk-ons who hardly get a play, most of them, uh, still busting their butt every day in the weight room, er, you know, conditioning, uh, in the classroom, doing all the things they got to do just to get the possibility of a chance that one day they get to go in there and play football with the, with the red N on their, on their helmet. Uh, you know, that inspires some of the re- recruits, some of the kids that maybe aren't from the area, don't know the history of Nebraska quite as well, to begin to appreciate how much it matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I had it because our, our walk-on program is definitely something that differentiates us from uh, other schools, seeing how many, you know, great players we've had over years that originated from that, that program. Exactly. Yep. yep. And so uh, moving on more to the Nebraska-specific talk here, I'm looking at this uh, uh, Journal Star uh, article that's kind of recapping signing day, and I didn't know this uh, statistic. It mentions that uh, the Rivals, just two weeks ago, Rivals had us ranked as low as 45, but then after signing day we were up at 25 on their list. So we really made some late-game gains, as you were saying. We did, and we we missed on a few players too, for sure. But but we did. We secured commitments from some premier players, including a guy that rivals viewed as one of their top 100 uh, players in the country, one of the best you know uh, athletes uh, in the country, uh, safeties uh, in the country. Uh, although he he's such a great athlete that I, I, it's my understanding that he will likely start at corner for Nebraska. Uh, because he wants to try that, and I think Nebraska sees him and, and values tall, big, long corners. And so that's kind of our target uh, body style for, for a cornerback, and he fits the bill, but he's quite you know, big and powerful for that, for that position. So if he can do it, he has the chance to be an NFL type of corner because he's got the body for it, you know? Yeah, for sure. Um, and the... Uh... You sent me that video earlier, um, I'm blanking on his name, with the quarterback talking with Langsdorf in that, um, in that film room uh, breakdown video. Who was that again? That's Patrick O'Brien, who is, our, who is our, our high school quarterback recruit from this class, committed to us very early on, knew that he was graduating at semester, so he's already on campus in Lincoln. We'll be able to go through spring practice with the team, and hopefully we'll have an opportunity to you know learn uh, not only under the – um, the, the tutelage of our our offensive coordinator uh, uh, Danny Langsdorf, but also uh, to get some some uh, you know getting under the wing, so to speak, of of our senior quarterback uh, Armstrong, and and at a minimum he's going to be a, a great challenge for for Tommy Armstrong and a guy that will uh, uh, help compel Tommy to do the best that he possibly can do. Uh, but it is also going to allow us the luxury of, of maybe having a capable back, backup so that if Tommy gets hurt or if Tommy were to struggle, that we have a guy we can go to with the confidence that the that the performance of the offense isn't going to go in the tank. Right. Yeah, I, I thought that was a good – I'm glad you sent me that video. It was good to see them really just breaking down those plays in detail and just kind of giving you an idea of like, you know – 
how much is running through those quarterbacks head, you know, as they're in the moment in the pocket, you know, they have to be reading all these, you know, formations and going through their progressions. There's so much, you know, mental, such a mental capacity for it. And obviously it's hard to tell from this just little video, but it certainly seems like O'Brien has a pretty good handle on that section of the game. Absolutely. It's, it's one of his greatest strengths. If you were to listen to an interview of, of, of the coaching staff, uh, Danny, Danny Langsdorf or, um, 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 Riley. Coach Riley, Riley. Uh, either one of them, they would talk about his maturity and and how sophisticated he already is as a quarterback. That he sees and is and is and is able to scan the field and take his reads and progressions uh, at a level that is not typical of a high school senior. And so uh, he's he's ahead of the game in that regard. Now that might mean that he's already at his peak as a physical, you know, quarterback um, because he's already gone through some of that curve but there's still much more for him to learn and uh and the fact that some of that is already uh very second natured what we would call unconscious competence is already there then he can already take it to the next level because he doesn't have to start from ground zero so Mm -hmm. i would expect him to uh, assimilate into the offense more rapidly than your typical freshman quarterback does okay so what would you say, obviously O'Brien is certainly one of them, and I would say probably that it sounds like this Lamar Jackson guy is someone who's, who rivals, was very high on. Um, what are some of the other highlights of this recruiting class, would you say? Well, we, we, we secured a couple of, uh, uh, of local or, or near local uh, offensive linemen that, are, that were hugely critical to our class. And, and overall, the group of offensive linemen, we signed four. Um, are all, I think, very good players and bode well to the future of our offensive line and the pipeline. Uh, but two of them particularly, uh, John Rairden and, um, um, let's see here, um, and then uh, Mac, Matt, uh, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow up his name here, so I'm going to try to try to have it in front of me, uh, Farney, Farniok, Matt Farniok. Right. Yeah, and he's from South Dakota and uh, – um, um, John uh, is from uh, Iowa, uh, Rairden, and, and, and Rairden is a, uh, um, is a legacy. His dad played for Nebraska and was a, a very good player for us. And, boy, if you watch, if you have the opportunity, uh, if you're a Nebraska fan, you, you have to watch the film of those two players uh, uh, that, that is available on Husker Max and any number of these different websites that you can watch their high school highlight films because both of them are just ridiculously dominant players. Uh, now, part of that is, you know, the competition. Uh, they're, they're pushing around little kids, basically. It's men playing boys. But you, you also see the tremendous movement with John. You see great movement with his legs. He's clearly worked really hard on that the whole concept of short steps and powerful steps and just being explosive and, and, and powerful in everything that he did. Um, and uh, same with Farniok. He explodes into into uh, the opposing you know uh, player and I, I just love that and uh, but they're both going to have to learn the speed of the game that's the part that's the biggest jump for any high school especially offensive linemen is they're going to see guys that are faster and more powerful than they've ever seen in their lives and sometimes those kids can adjust to that and other times they just melt and can't handle it so we'll see but I think it bodes well for this class that offensive line group yeah, that definitely seems like one of the highlights. I'm looking here at a quote from Riley. I'm curious on your thought on this. Uh, he says, um, 
just so you know, my general bit of advice to all these guys is come here ready to play. Get yourself ready to compete to play in the games. Don't come ready to redshirt. Get yourself ready to go, and let's see where it takes us. Um, do you think that's just kind of a, yeah, of course, all, any coach is going to say that kind of thing? Or do you think that's a legitimate um, sign from Riley that if one of these guys you know, impresses him, uh, he, he would he would start a redshirt freshman, you know, that he's not like opposed to that. Well, you mean a true freshman, right? Um, right, right yeah, yeah. Um, I uh, uh, the answer is yes, and he did that this year. Um, uh, we 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 started a, a freshman at at, at right tackle, um, and uh, and he was replacing a returning starter. So uh, uh, he's already demonstrated his willingness to do that, and I think that yes, almost every coach wants that message to be loud and clear to his to his uh, recruits they should all come in here with the expectation that they're going to play and the reason you want them to do that is because you don't know what's going to happen you don't know what's going to happen in terms of departures you don't know what's going to happen in terms of injuries uh and just their talent level and so until you see them in the mix you don't know where they're at uh you can watch all the beautiful highlight films that show all their great greatness but until they're up up against a fifth-year senior defensive tackle, you know, who's just eating their lunch. And, you know, in, in the course of one practice, do they figure it out and start understanding the speed and the quickness and, and start adjusting? Or do they kind of just throw their hands up and say, I can't block this guy? And, and you don't know which one it's going to go to, you know, which way that's going to go. So that's what he, he means is he, he needs those guys to all come in absolutely expecting and being in the physical condition to compete for uh, playing time, no matter what. Yeah, for sure. Uh, another th- interesting thing I saw on Husker Max was that um, Nebraska's recruiting budget has doubled in five years, and it showed this graph of you know how much uh, they're spending on uh, spending on uh, recruiting. You know, from two from the 2010 season, it was about half a million, and now it's all the way up to about a million dollars. Um, but I was just curious, like, I wonder if you looked at that, like, what's the kind of the, the nationwide trend? Like, are we right on point or, you know, cause I would, I would imagine that since Saban has gotten to Alabama and, you know, started hiring all those people that he uses to do recruiting, I mean, their budget must've jumped exponentially larger. Yeah. And I, I haven't necessarily seen the, the data on that, but I can assure you that, yeah, teams, teams, uh, like, um, like the uh, the SEC schools, but particularly the high-end SEC schools like Alabama and LSU and those guys, they all spend a lot of money on recruiting, particularly on recruiting staff. Okay, that's where they uh, are 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 just blowing the doors off of a lot of other schools, particularly uh, in comparison to say Big Ten schools. Now, Big Ten schools are 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 starting to grow their staffs to try to compete with that but uh, but we're still well behind what the sec schools have committed to but what's unique about nebraska is i i I would suggest to you and i think i've even seen this uh, when listed that nebraska if not the number one they're very near the top in uh recruiting spending and but that doesn't necessarily have to do with the the size of the recruiting office staff I, i don't think we have the most staff people uh it's that our travel budget and, right. and the, the distances we must travel to go uh, to see these kids and to visit them and such is so much more expensive uh, and, f- and, you know, just further distance. Um, so our guys absolutely have to spend more money and spend more time than any other staff 
probably in the nation. Right. Yeah. Well, that certainly amongst like uh, premier powers, you know, historical right. football powers, I would say Nebraska is definitely up there in terms of travel. Because obviously, plenty of other schools have tiny state populations, but a lot of them aren't. You know, not teams that have won national championships in the past. Right. Well, and and or they're they're near population centers that are huge sources of of athletes that they can tap into. They're pretty close. If you're out in the West Coast and you're close enough to Los Angeles and, you know, um, uh, San Francisco and uh, San Diego and some of the other big cities and in uh, the state of California, well, you're in you're in golden shape then to uh, to be able to go in there and tap into those those uh, abundance of players. Right. All right. Well, I've been I've been asking you all these questions, guy, in the conversation. What's what's a topic you want to bring up about this recruiting class? Well, you know, uh, Alex. Uh, one thing I was going to mention was, you know, just looking at it from a Nebraska perspective. You, you know, for us to aspire to winning championships regularly, uh, Big Ten championships. I'm talking. I'm not talking national championships. I think national championships happen uh, uh, you know uh, in time if all the other things line up uh, and so our focus as a fan base and certainly I, I believe this of our coaching staff our focus is on uh, putting ourselves in a position to win big Ten championships and go to major bowl games that's that's the step we want to take and so um, with that in mind um, you know what Michigan and Ohio State are doing doing is not something we've ever historically done even when we were winning national championships we weren't recruiting uh at the level that those guys recruit at we were doing a far better job and were and kind of had some some of uh, some what of a lead in other areas uh, in terms of development and, and other areas of uh of the process of, of making a player better our weight facilities and and our food and nutrition uh, uh, capabilities were superior to most other schools, even the, the premier powers at that time. Uh, now, all of those schools have every bit as good a facilities and nutrition programs and strength training programs as us, and, and many of them have better because we've, we've lost our way a little bit in, uh, through all these transitions of coaches because every time you change coach, you generally change those uh, staff members as well. And, and so we haven't had the continuity, uh, and, and it shows in our performance on the field, frankly. So for Nebraska, there's kind of, a, I see, a couple steps that we have to take. The first one is what we did here. Even in the face of a 6-7 and seven record, Nebraska was able to secure pretty much a consensus top recruiting class among the Big Ten West schools. And so we've put ourselves in a position, and if we can do that consistently, and we did it last year too, even though it was Mike Riley's first year, I believe our recruiting class was either first or second of the teams in the West. It was, uh, we were first. Uh, it was us yeah. and then Wisconsin. Okay. So, uh, and that's, the, that's true again this year then, that it was us and then Wisconsin. So, so we are, we are, we should be, if these talent evaluations are to be, you know, judged reasonable. Um, we should be uh, putting ourselves in a position to have more talent than most other schools in our division. And, and, and that should put us in a position to win those divisional championships. And that's what we need to start doing. So our next step needs to be to take this talent and, and translate it into a, a Big Ten West championship. And now we get into the championship game. Well, uh, again, 
Only 22 players can can start a game. And so even though Ohio State might have a heck of a lot more talent than us, or Michigan, or or even Penn State, uh, you know, see, I I would I would argue that if you look at recruiting rankings, uh, we compare very favor- favorably in terms of the perceived talent level of us versus Michigan State. I would say we're pretty close to Penn State. We're a long way away from Michigan and Ohio State at this point. Those two teams would be perceived to have a lot more talent than us. But for one game, with our top 22 against their top 22, or our top 44 against their top 44 we aren't so far off we could find a way especially with superior development and superior coaching and i i am beginning to see progress among within our coaching staff that leads me to believe that we might be pretty good uh from a coaching standpoint well uh, what could you expand on that what has recently has made you um more and more confident in in riley's staff well, there's a couple of things. One is, and I think I've mentioned this on some podcasts earlier in the year, although I don't love um, uh, everything about um, the offense that Coach Riley and Coach Langsdorf ha- are putting in place, I have to acknowledge that I've seen an awful lot of wide-open receivers that that Nebraska had within its system. I believe that the system they're trying to put in place can be effective and could have been effective this year with a quarterback who was making better decisions. Uh, I mean, it was really, that was a major factor in, in what led to uh, some of our problems on the offensive side of the football. Defensively, I saw a, a fairly uh, consistent progress of improvement from our defense from early in the year to late in the year. We played our best games generally later in the year on defense. Um, and, uh, and, and I looked to the last four or five games, you know, basically after the Purdue game, when we had that week off and, and prepared for Michigan State, uh, we made some changes along the offensive line. We made a few changes, tweaks defensively in terms of personnel and what we were trying to do. We made a stronger commitment to the running game, and our team looked a lot better. So I think the staff learned a few things. They learned a little bit about what it's going to take to be successful in Big Ten football, and I think they, they probably learned a little bit about their team and, and what, what maybe we were uh, a little more capable of, of running the football and being a power-based team than they thought we were. And so you look at all of those things in combination, and I feel better uh, about where I think the program's going. And then you listen to Coach Riley and during this uh, signing day. I mean, almost all the media folks talked about it. Riley sounded a lot more focused, inspired, just motivated than he did last year. Last year's recruiting class conversations were kind of an aw shucks, we're happy to be here. This year, it was about this is what we need to do. Here's what we learned about last season. Here's what we learned about recruiting last season. These are the, some of the mistakes we don't want to make again. Re-emphasis of the importance of the 500-mile radius around Nebraska and that we have to recruit nationally and, and do well in, in California. We want to do better in Texas. We didn't sign anybody from Texas this year, which is not a good thing. I think we need to have a presence in Texas, and a, there needs to be a presence of Texas players on our team all the time. Uh, because it's just too too much of a source of great players. But on the positive side, I think we've put together a compilation of talent and now guys that are going to be returning starters that we can put a top 44 on the field that could compete for a Big Ten West championship next season and hopefully then put us in a position to, 
to have our one shot against whoever it is from the East, whether it's Michigan State or Michigan or Ohio State or even Penn State, although I think that's less likely. Right. Well, um, going on with what you were saying earlier about, you know, focusing on the Big Ten championship game, I mean, it, it's it's in my mind, it's pretty simple. You know, first thing is you focus on winning the division, you know, making it to the Big Ten championship game. So you're really focused on that Big Ten record, you know, how are you doing against the teams you're playing? And then if you get to that game, then you just game plan and you hope like hell that you can beat, you know, whoever it is you're playing from the East. You know, I mean, look at us this year, you know, even as bad as we were at parts of the season, we managed to beat the Big Ten champion, you know, Michigan State in a game. So it's obviously possible. Oh, uh, absolutely. You know, and then if you do, if you can do that, then you're probably in the top five or six teams in the nation, you know, depending on if there's a Notre Dame, you know, who's a non-conference person in contention for like those top four spots, you know, and I think the committee has shown that if you can power through and win your conference, you're, you've got a pretty good shot of making it into one of those four spots. So then the net, like you say, the national championship conversation kind of just unfolds after that. Right. So uh, yeah, it's exactly right. And so, that kind of finishes my, my point about what, from a directional standpoint, a couple of things I wanted to mention just real briefly because I, I think this might be insightful for Nebraska fans who are listening to the podcast today, and that would be that as I look at this particular recruiting class, there's two things that strike me uh, that harken back to the old days, and I'm a guy who, who began following recruiting in the 70s, uh, so, so <laughs> uh, in the 1970s, <laughs> so I've been watching this for a while, and, and I can tell you that you know, back then, uh, the, I, I remember anticipating and looking forward to uh, uh, the newspaper coming on Sunday after the season was over, uh, and and to see the eventual Parade All American uh, list. And and Parade Magazine is a longtime magazine that's an insert in, in newspapers across the country, uh, and and was one of the early you know uh, uh, groups that 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 put together a compilation. Now, the truth is is that uh, one of the things that's unique about Parade even today is that they generally focus on what these kids did in high school. Uh, most of the recruiting services, like the Rivals and the Scout and the uh, ESPN 300s and all those, they all focus on uh, projections of what these kids are going to do in college and, and frankly, uh, the NFL. So they're looking at how tall are they, how long are their arms, are their shoulders wide enough, you know, all these kinds of very specific physical attributes that, that correlate to great success at the next level. And I think that's all appropriate and, and, and certainly has proven out to, to be accurate to the, in general. Um, but there is something else there that the parade magazine list tends to capture, and that is the guy's just a good football player, you know? And as I look at uh, our, our list of recruits, uh, you, you find that we have a couple of parade All-Americans, guys who are three-star players, one – one in particular is uh, uh, Daron Grimm, okay? Uh, uh, I think that's how you pronounce his first name. It's either mm-hmm. D- Darren or Daron uh, right. Grimm. He's out of California, and he's a wide receiver, just 5'11 and 190 pounds, so not a, not a huge player, very much like uh, Westerkamp, uh, okay, at Nebraska. Uh, now, mm-hmm. all this kid did was uh, catch 96 passes for 1,928 yards and 34 touchdowns in 10 games this year in a California high school, breaking the state record um, uh, for um, high school receptions in one season. Um, The guy was a finalist for Parade uh, All-American of the Year. 
He was one of four finalists. He didn't win it, but he was one of the four finalists. Right. Well, um, it seems like to me that's uh, a, as a result of the uh, you know, recruiting getting earlier and earlier, you know, as people try to get kids while they're young, you know, get them as soon as you can kind of thing. Uh, right. It, it seems like, you know, they get recruited so heavily in like their junior year that their senior year, you know, sometimes a player, you know, might not look so great their junior year, but, you know, they come out senior year and they come out looking, doing great, you know, or, you know, maybe a player that you thought looked great kind of let himself go a little and had a, a little bit of a more poor senior season, you know. And so I just think that it's it's interesting to see sometimes, like, those players that you've gotten, like, the verbal commitments from, you know, before their senior year even starts, you know, to see how that plays out. Because sometimes it can turn out, oh, well, we recruit this guy when he's a three-star, and after his senior year, now he looks like a four-star, you know, kind of right. level of player. Well, and one of the reasons, you know, again, this uh, he only had 35 catches for 600 and some yards as a junior, um, uh, missed a few games because of injury. So there's probably some questions about does he have the toughness, does he have durability, is his body able to take the pounding that he's going to have to take at the collegiate level. There's all kinds of reasons. So even though he had that spectacular senior season, he didn't move up to four-star, you know, because he just does not have those measurables and there's enough question marks about what, what he's going to do and yet you can look at his production on the field and you begin to say wow this guy could be special he could be one of those under the radar guys and so uh, i always like to look at that parade list because i feel like that represents more of the just natural perceived high school ability of those players um and uh, a couple of our offensive linemen that i mentioned earlier uh raritan and um and farniak also got recognition in this so it's 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 a big deal. And the other way I break down this thing is, uh, again, back in the day, uh, you didn't have all this national information. So what you did typically have is each state identified who their best players were, and it wasn't that hard to to do some research and find out, you know, the players of the year and the best players, the top ten players, top one hundred players, and bigger states uh, uh, in these individual states. And so where they ranked in those state lists. Were, uh, were a very critical uh, in someone who followed recruiting. And I can tell you that we have uh, four or five, uh, four for sure, that basically were the number one ranked player in their state, individual states. And when, you get, when you're getting kids like that, that's a good sign. That's a very good sign. That's the formula that Tom Osborne used in the 70s and 80s. And that excites me. Mm. Yeah, no, that is definitely good news. I mean, that's something we talked about a lot during the uh, Bose era, too, you know, was that he seemed like he was a very, he was good at evaluating talent, you know, and seeing something in a three-star, you know, that maybe Rivals wasn't. And after, you know, teams saw that Bo was interested in him, you know, then they started, you know, sending them uh, letters and things like that, too. Uh, right. So, so that's something that, a lot of the Nebraska coaches have, have shown to be good at is like identifying that kind of under the radar talent, if you will. Yep. Yep. So uh, again, as I slice and dice this a little bit, I see that uh, as some real positives about, you know, this recruiting class and just in general where the program is headed there. There are reasons for Nebraska fans to be very excited about what's coming, but I would also say on the other side of it, that I think that this next year, is just very, very critical uh, for uh, Coach Riley and the Nebraska football team and for two reasons. I, I felt this year was very critical 
I really, really had hoped that we would do well and end up playing for a conference championship this year. I felt we needed to because the schedule played out so nicely for us. And it was a pretty, it was a relatively easy Big Ten schedule for us. And our non-conference schedule set up very nicely. We had some challenges, but they were manageable challenges. Uh, and uh, we weren't able to take advantage of, of it early with the BYU Hail Mary pass loss. And then we went down to Miami and got beat there. And all of a sudden, you're looking at two and two in the non-con. But even then, I still felt like, well, if we could turn it around, our Big Ten slate is really very attractive. We got a lot of guy, a lot of teams that are the most talented teams we're going to play. We're playing at home. Life's good. We can still do well here. But we didn't. We laid an egg. We didn't do those things until late in the season that we needed to do. And even then, in our very final game, where we could have been basically four and zero in our last four games. I mean, imagine what happens if we beat Iowa in that game. The, a team that we doubled in yardage and doubled in, or not doubled in yardage, but doubled in first downs and, and you know, out-yarded by, you know, a, a couple hundred yards or something. I mean, we physically dominated that game in so many of the measurables. But when you have four turnovers, you lose. It's just mm-hmm. that simple. And so it was our own lack of discipline and, and, and not being able to take advantage of the opportunities that were presented to us that kept us from really leveraging that momentum. But I see enough there that I can look to next year and say, okay, now this year is absolutely critical. We have to win the Big Ten West this coming season in 2016. Yeah. Have to. Well, I was kind of thinking about that when you, you were mentioning that, that talk that the news had had about Raleigh's kind of demeanor, you know, in the recruiting uh conference um you know because i mean obviously last year you know he didn't have much time to recruit being a new coach and all that and he was just you know coming from his oregon state job you know so this is his like kind of shot at the big time as it were you know a major college football perennial power and all that and so you know maybe he just it was he was like you said he was happy to be there you know i remember us talking back when he first arrived about how amazed he was at like the facilities and you know the all, all the things he had available to him at Nebraska that he had never experienced at Oregon State um, whereas now I feel like he's gotten more used to that he understands uh, what 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 kind of players he needs to recruit now you know having seen how this season played out and probably a combination of the fact that he knows that he's in a bit of hot water and that he needs to pick it up here in the next season so I I think that might have uh, made Riley uh, a little bit more serious, perhaps. Right. Uh, well, and I, I, I absolutely agree. And he's made a decision here uh, just in the last week to uh, uh, not renew the contract with our defensive line coach, who was a guy who uh, had been under fire from you know fans and, and even media members uh, throughout the season because, number one, we, we failed miserably uh, in many respects at securing any kind of interest from the premier defensive tackle uh, uh, players uh, and from a recruiting standpoint. We just did not do that well, and that was his area of responsibility, and it just didn't happen. And then secondarily, um, you know, we, we had a, a pretty decent year at defensive tackle because he inherited some, some NFL-caliber players. In fact, both of them as juniors left to go to the NFL. Um, and so that tells you he had some real, real material to work with. But then we didn't, we didn't secure any 
uh, additional support for our defensive end position, which was a, a critical need. So we're now going to go into next season, frankly, with one gaping hole, and that is we're going to have to have some guys emerge at defensive end that we don't know what their talent level is right now. We don't have really any surefire players there. The best defensive end we got is probably going to move to defensive tackle because we're going to need him there. <laughs> and, and he was so big and powerful that he, he may be a better natural fit at defensive tackle. But that, that just leaves the whole door open at defensive end. And, um, and so you just can't do that. And, and the fact that he was able to, you know, a guy who is historically, Riley has been a guy who's shown great loyalty to his staff, he was willing to make that quick decision after just one season tells you he's committed to excellence. Mm, well, that's good. You know, I mean, you know, we, that's another thing we've talked about, you know, is that the days of, you know, once again, the days of Tom Osborne where you have coaches who stick with you, you know, for a, a decade or more, you know, you don't, don't see that nearly as often nowadays, you know, just both with, you know, the uh, increased pressure to succeed both from the head coach and their support staff, as well as just the, you know, uh, assistants wanting to move up in the world, you know, and so jumping on the opportunities when they come a calling. Right. Absolutely. So that, that, uh, that opens the door maybe for, for some additional conversations for us down the road. I think we can have some conversation and on topics such as the recruiting misses maybe next time. Uh, and, and a little bit about the recruiting process and how that um, how some of those things really uh, are. Uh, there's some unhealthy trends that are going on that, that, that I would like to see changed. Uh, and, and I'd like to articulate maybe how we could accomplish that. Uh, um, so there's there's certainly lots to fix, uh, both for Nebraska specifically and well, as well as the NCAA in general and the Big Ten specifically. Uh, I've got some real strong opinions there. <laughs> uh, so those are all some things we can we can spend our our off season contemplating. Yep, there's always stuff to talk about. That's the right, and hopefully hopefully somebody out there in the internet land is going to find it entertaining. That's uh, right, and insightful. All right. Well, if you did find it entertaining and insightful, you can email us at huskerpete13 at gmail.com. You can find us online. We're at uh, footballthrowdown.podomatic.com. You can also find us on iTunes under College Football Throwdown. You can leave us comments on the Podomatic website, or you can leave us uh, rings and reviews in iTunes. We always like in feedback from our fans. Uh, so thank you out there for listening, and thank you, Dad, for joining me. Uh, well, yeah, hopefully we'll be back in two weeks or so to do some more off-season discussion. I think we'll hit some of those recruiting topics that you were just talking about. So, till next time, go Big Red. Go Big Red. Go Big Red.